everyone who is with us today. We're glad you're here. We love you. We love getting together to look at God's Word. But I'd like to just make a little comment before we get into our study of the morning. A little nudge, a little encouragement. I would encourage everyone to, when you come to this service on Sunday morning, to bring your Bible with you. Um, and I, there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, the Word of God is the Word of God. The Bible is God's way of communicating His heart, His plan, His purposes to us in a language that we can understand. God is a communicative God. He is a God who loves to communicate His heart to us. And we read that in the pages of the Scripture. That's why we have Bible as our middle name, Westside Bible Fellowship. We use the Bible a lot. We teach it. We believe it. We apply it. And hopefully we'll be doing that this morning. Um, the other reason is to bring your Bible is that, yes, it'll be up on the screens, but it's also important to have it right in front of you so you can maybe test what we say. Are we telling the truth? The way to find out is by looking at the Scripture itself. And the other reason is, and I like to do this, interestingly, I, if you see my Bible, it'll usually have a pen clipped to it everywhere I go, uh, at home, wherever I might go. I do that because I frequently take notes, mark up my Bible, underline keywords, thoughts that really stand out to me. And you'll be able to do that too. I know I've used digital phone and, and there's great value in that, but it's a little bit difficult to mark those up unless you want a new screen. But um, you can mark up your Bible. It's a very good practice to follow. So just a little encouragement to bring your Bible, have it in front of you so you can see it and use it. And hopefully God will say powerful things to you. That's what he wants to do. And that's what I pray will happen this morning. In fact, let's pray that right now. Thank you, Lord, that when you created Adam and Eve in the garden, your plan was to have a close relationship with them. They pushed you away, but you didn't give up. Thank you, Lord, that you sent the prophets who spoke your word, and then you took that dramatic step to actually send your very own son who taught some of the things we're going to see this morning, but then went to the cross because you loved us so much because you want to have that close relationship with us. I pray we would see your heart. Pray, Lord, that we would see your plan. And for some who are kind of far away from you, I pray you would open up their eyes to really understand how they can have a close 
minute-by-minute relationship with you. Show us your will through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, with that said, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. And by the way, if you don't even have a Bible, you come see me and I'll give you one. Free. No charge. Um, there's some people that haven't found a Bible yet. That's okay. But to find Luke, you go to the second half of the Bible. We call it the New Testament. Third book in. And if you really get stuck, most Bibles have a table of contents, an index of where you can find. But we're in the Gospel of Luke looking at this series of encountering Jesus. Not just the people that Jesus encountered, but when he encountered them, what happened to them? What did they see in Jesus? What did they hear from his teaching? And that's the series we've been going through. And today we're going to be talking about, as Ken mentioned, the wrong and the right way to approach God and have a relationship with him. We're in in chapter 18. We're going to begin with verse 9. And just let me read the passage for you as you look in your Bibles or look up on the screen. He, verse 9 says, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other the IRS tax collector. Actually, we're going to see a lot worse than the IRS. Verse 11, the Pharisees stand, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So let's take apart this little six-verse account that is a parable with an application that Jesus told. By the way, just a little reminder, um, Jesus told a lot of parables. A parable is simply a story. This culture was very much into stories. They told stories. They would sit around their fires and swap stories. And it was a very, very common thing for them to do. Jesus told stories, but not for entertainment value. 
He told stories to make a point. And usually every parable had one main point. And we're going to see what his point was as we go through this parable. Verse 10. Two characters in the story. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisees were among the highest leaders in the Jewish religion. And they were very strict followers of God's law that we find in the Old Testament. I looked up and there are probably more than 600 commands, laws, that were part of the Old Testament law. That's a lot. The Pharisees, for the most part, were familiar with all of them. They tried to obey all of them. They taught the people to obey them too. But the Pharisees had a bit of a problem. While they had external piety, they looked holy. They looked like people who were following God's law. That was on the outside. On the inside, there was a lot of sin. And one of the sins that the Pharisees were guilty of a lot was pride. They would often do their duties in obeying the law externally so people would see them. And we find that in other passages in the Gospels. They would do that. The tax collectors were very, very different. Even though the Pharisees had this outward piety to them, the tax collectors were considered the scum of Israel. They weren't just collecting taxes. They were actually hired by the Roman government to do their dirty work. And the tax collectors would go out and collect taxes for Rome. But in the process, many of them were very dishonest. They would rip off people. They might tell someone, well, your tax for the year is a $1,000. But I'm going to charge you $1,200. And the people paying the tax had no choice but to pay up or there would be consequences. And then the tax collector would take the extra 200 pocket it, and that was their pay. That's how they made their, their wages. And the tax collectors were considered to be very evil people, and the Jews absolutely despised them. Have you seen the Chosen series? Remember Matthew? He was not very well liked. He was hated. He was avoided. As people would see the tax collectors coming, they would run the other way, hide in their house, because they didn't want to deal with these evil guys. Those were the two people who went up to the temple for the purpose of praying. And what did they pray? The Pharisee, it says, he went up into the temple to pray. This is verse 11. He stood by himself, it says. Not sure exactly what that means, but it could very well be that he stood up in front of everybody 
They would be there. He would be here. And he went through the motions of praying. Actually, it's not much of a prayer. He starts out with God. But then he's not talking to God. He's talking about himself. And he says, I'm not like other men. And then he goes on to describe what he considers other men extortioners. That's basically what a tax collector was. He says, unjust. Another description of a tax collector. Adulterers. And then he looks over at this tax collector and almost spits out the words, even like this tax collector. In essence, he wasn't lifting God up. He was lifting up himself probably to be heard by other people so they would consider him a holy man. Shame on this man. Bragging about his accomplishments. And then he goes into the details. He says, um, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. The Jewish law only required fasting once a year. But he says that I fast twice a week. He was going the second mile. And then he said, I give tithes of all that I get. They were supposed to tithe from their earnings. But this guy basically tithed from everything he bought. Can you imagine a little pepper shaker? And he's got to give 10% of that away. So he spreads all the grains of pepper out on the table and he counts them. And then he gives 10% away. This is the kind of guy he was. And he is boasting about it. Instead of comparing himself to God, who is absolutely holy who demands perfection, not just your best effort. This Pharisee was comparing himself to people who are worse than him. And that's what we tend to do, don't we? We compare ourselves to those worse than us instead of better than us so that we look good uh, by comparison. But then the tax collector begins to pray. It says that he stood far off, probably in some corner of the temple, dark corner where no one could see him. He's feeling unworthy even to be there and to approach God. But then he speaks to the God, to God. And he says, God, be merciful To me, a sinner. The Pharisee didn't ask for anything. He just talked about himself. The tax collector has a simple prayer. And is focused on his own unworthiness. And the only description that he gives about himself is that he's a sinner. He knows the evil things he's done. And he tells God he admits it. 
And he has only one request, and that is for God's great mercy. He knows that he has no hope apart from the mercy of God. His sin is so great, he can't fix it himself. He has this problem in his relationship with God, and he needs the mercy of God. And he asks God for it. Jesus then says a shocking thing. If you had been there in that temple watching these two guys, which one do you think would have measured up in the eyes of God the best? He probably picked Pharisee. He looks so holy, so pious. All of his detailed obedience... And yet Jesus turns the tables dramatically. And he says this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified means the whole idea of being counted righteous. Jesus says, of the two, the one that went away from the temple, counted righteous, was not the pious Pharisee, but the very, very sinful tax collector. We're going to talk about why and how that happened. But I see the tax collector coming into the temple... A very, very sinful man. And he leaves the temple having been justified, forgiven by God. What a change. By the way, if you've come into the service this morning feeling very sinful, being very aware of your sin, you can walk out of here being counted righteous by a holy God. That's a beautiful thing. The the Pharisee, on the other hand, came in as this pious, so-called holy individual, and he leaves a sinner. And then Jesus makes the statement, which is really the principle that he is sharing. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself, lifts himself up, calls attention to their good works and how good of a person they are, will be humbled, and I believe the reference here to being humble is the idea they will not be justified or counted righteous. They will forego forgiveness. But on the other hand, the person who humbles themselves will be exalted in the sense of experiencing the very forgiveness of God. 
I want to talk about this whole concept of um, of being justified that we find here in verse 14. It means counted righteous. Supposing you have a bank account, and because of your horrible spending habits, buying things you couldn't afford, charging things to your credit card, going way beyond what is wise for you to do, you look at your bank balance and you're down to $80. And you've got bills in the thousands. What are you going to do? (laughs) You're totally bankrupt. You have no way to pay your debt. There's nothing you can really do to quickly fix the problem. But then all of a sudden, you find on your bank statement a deposit for a million dollars. And some anonymous person, being aware of your debt, deposits a million dollars in your bank account. And you go in an instant from being bankrupt to being a millionaire. And the thing you realize is that you had nothing to do with fixing the problem. The problem was fixed by that anonymous person who made that deposit. And instead of being counted bankrupt and a horrible money manager, you're now counted a millionaire. That is sort of what God's justification through Jesus and what He has done has accomplished. Sin causes spiritual bankruptcy. And the question is, what can we do about it? When we owe this huge debt... And the payment for the debt is eternal death in hell. What can we do to get out from under that problem? We can't fix it ourselves. What can we do? There are two ways we can possibly approach the problem. One is wrong, one is right. The wrong way is depending on our good works That is the wrong way to approach God and be accepted by Him. I want to share some scriptures from Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans, several books to the right of Luke. But Romans in the third chapter. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says this. By works of the law... No human being will be justified. There's that word. No human being will be justified or counted righteous in his, that is God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
The law simply condemns because it points out the fact that we have disobeyed. And there's no way that we can undo our spiritual debt and the condemnation that hangs over our heads on our own. You know, we can live a perfect life from this point until we die. But what about the sins of the past? How do we gain forgiveness for them? Depending on works, whether it's being nice to your dog, being nice to your wife or husband, attending church, reading your Bible, getting baptized... All of these things are good, but they cannot open the door for us to have a justified relationship with God. Verse 23 says, for kind of explaining the reason for verse 20, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Supposing a bunch of us, you included, would go down to Cannon Beach this afternoon and we would um, go to the shore and we would all dive in the water with the intention to swim to Hawaii. Don't try this at home. But we do that. Some of us might get a few yards and then go down, probably me. Some of you might get out a hundred yards, two hundred yards, and then you go down. Some of you might even swim, if you're really a good swimmer, you might get out a mile or so. But you're not going to make it to Hawaii. Every one of us will fall short. Every single one of us. Some of us are better people than others. Some people are worse. But all of us fall short and we desperately need God's wonderful, wonderful grace. Which brings us to the way to approach God the right way. And it is this. Trusting what Christ has done on the cross is the only way to approach God and be accepted by Him. Not just the best way, it's the only way. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work and get our own forgiveness. It's impossible. God knows that. And He came to the rescue by sending His own Son to this earth. Who, yes, lived a good life. Who taught wonderful things. Who called people to follow Him as His disciples. But then the pinnacle of what He did was when He went to the cross that we remembered a few minutes ago, went to the cross, took upon Himself the guilt for all of our sin. 
allowed God's wrath to pour out on him for that. So that he can offer full forgiveness. No strings attached. Not to be earned, but free. The next verse in Romans chapter 3 says this, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Verse 23 was bad news. All fall short of God's glory. This is the good news. That God makes justification or being counted righteous available. And look at the key words. It talks about grace. Undeserved. But it talks about a gift offered freely. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to be a better person, although grace, when it works in our lives and we come to know the heart of Jesus, it changes our behavior. But that comes later, not before. And the other key word I see is redemption, referring to the price that Jesus paid when He died in our place whom God put forward as a propitiation. What does that big word mean? I think it simply means a satisfaction. Where Christ offered Himself, took our guilt upon Himself, and God the Father assessed that and concluded, it's enough. Jesus said His last words when He died, it is finished. He wasn't referring to the fact that His agony was over. He was referring to the fact that His payment was done. Didn't have to be added to. And it was a complete satisfaction for our sin at the cost of His shed blood. His broken body. That is the salvation, the justification that God offers you freely today. And it's there for the taking and you take it, another key word, very last two words, by faith. God has made provision through His Son and He offers it, but He asks us to believe, put faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, and what He has done. Let me ask you a question. 
Supposing today you die and you come to the gate of heaven and God meets you at the gate and says, uses your name, and He says, why should I let you come into my holy heaven? You're a sinner. You've disobeyed countless times. My heaven is holy. Why should I let you come in? What would you answer? I face that question myself over my lifetime. You know what I think I would do? What I would say? Probably very similar to the tax collector. I actually did this when I was fairly young. I understood that I was a sinner. I never killed anybody. I had disobeyed my parents. I had treated other people wrongly and a whole list of other sins. And one night, it dawned on me that I was separated from God. I was not ready to give a good answer at the gate of heaven. And I prayed very simply to God. I don't remember the exact words, and I was probably stammering and stumbling, but I simply admitted that I was a sinner, deserved hell, did not deserve heaven. And yet I believe that Jesus Christ had come to this earth, had allowed Himself to be a sacrifice on the cross, allowed Himself to be killed, but in the process, absorbing all of the punishment that was aimed at me, it was put on Him. And... I believe that if I was the only person on this earth, He would have done it for me, and He did do it for me. And I personalize that. If I was asked that question at the gate of heaven, I frankly don't think I will be asked that question, because my eternal salvation is set. But if I was... I would simply say, God, I don't deserve to be here. I am a sinner. But I believe You sent Your Son who died in my place. And I trust Him. I believe that what He did was for me. I personalize that. And then I know the gate would swing open and I would walk in. Not my works, not anything that I've done, but simply what Jesus has done. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you can approach God. Now, in your relationship with Him now, and also how you can be with Him in heaven someday. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe this? If you have never prayed a simple prayer by telling God you believe it, I would ask you to do that this morning. You can do it right now. Simply, the words are not that important. It's the attitude of the heart and the faith that's in your heart that Jesus died for you that makes the difference. But a good way to express that is just like the tax collector. Talk to the Lord. I think he used six words. You can use six. You can use 60. But tell the Lord that you know you're a sinner against Him and deserve eternal death. But you believe Jesus died for you. And I would ask you to do that. A very healthy thing to do is come and talk to one of us and tell us you pray that. That you do believe it was for you. Come and tell us, not that we can pat ourselves on the back, but simply so we can come alongside you and help you know where to go from here. How to grow in your knowledge of Jesus. How to become a follower of Jesus. That's what we're here for. To help you for that, with that. The other thing to do, tell other people. Tell your family. Tell the people who you love the most. Parents, tell your kids. Kids, tell your parents. The other thing to do, is make a public witness by getting baptized. Baptism is for every Christian. We're planning to have one in several weeks and maybe a few weeks after that another one. But it's a way that you give witness to the fact that you believe Jesus died for you. You want to follow Him. And you kind of act out You died with Christ by going under the water. You rose with Christ by coming out of the water. And I tell people, when you walk away out that door, um, you are telling the world that you want to walk in newness of life. You want to follow Christ all of your life. And so those are some things to consider. But I encourage you, don't put off expressing the fact that you believe the gospel. And those of you who have done that, meditate on this story, on the gospel every single day. It'll change your life. It's changed mine. I'm still in process. But meditate on it every single day. Giving thanks to Jesus for what He's done for you. That you were bankrupt spiritually. And God took the initiative to send His Son to die for you. Let's pray together. Lord, 
We need you. We've seen the Pharisee who didn't need a thing. He had everything all set, he thought. And the tax collector who was so needy, Lord, that's us. We desperately need you. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would show some maybe who have been depending on their good works, their church attendance or baptism or some other thing that they have done and not fully trusting in what Jesus has done. And I pray you would open up their eyes to really understand the wonderful message of the Gospel. And I pray that some would believe for the first time. And the rest of us, Lord, that our hearts would be ignited by what Christ has done so that we would follow Him for life. That some would even take that step to proclaim their belief. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.